A couple things. First off, uh, men's breakfast next Saturday morning, uh, 8 a.m. or 8.15? 8 a.m.? Anybody? Men's breakfast? 8 a.m.? 8 a.m. In and out, kind of like this service, but just a little bit earlier. See, you can, if you're a dude, you can make it. Uh, so next Saturday morning, upstairs, uh, up in the youth room, they, they do a great job with breakfast every time I come, except for the one time. So, and I'll tell you what happened, is I, I was expecting, I was going to make a bacon burrito, and I was expecting big pieces of bacon, and Eddie San Jose thought it'd be really funny to cut them up into little pieces. And I'm like, what? I want big, flimsy bacon where you've got to get the, the drugs so you don't get sick afterwards. That's what I want. And I want to put it all in my burrito. That's the only time. So, you guys don't care. Okay. So, <clears throat> what's that? I will, oh, I may not actually be there. Are you going to make me bacon if I am there? <laughs> I'm not a big sausage fan. I loved me some bacon. I'll let you know this week. I'm trying to work it out so I can. But anyway, okay. I've been at every one so far. I've sometimes been in and out. But anyway, this Saturday, 8 a.m., men's breakfast. If you're a dude, show up. Okay. Second thing is, uh, Pacific Christian Center has invited us to, to shoot shotguns with them. I don't think they understand what they're getting themselves into. Because um, we're all shotguns! <laughs> Woohoo! Anyway, it's uh, 40 bucks. It includes two rounds of the, of the pigeons uh, and all of your shells and also a lunch. Uh, but they, we need to be signed up by the end of this month if you're planning to go. So you sign up in the back so we can know. Uh, the, men's are, the men's ministry is actually putting this together, uh, liaisoning with them and stuff like that. And last thing is uh, the next set of redemption groups are going to start in September. But if you want to go, the applications for it are due in two weeks. So if you haven't grabbed an application, grab one in the back. And if you have grabbed one and you want to go, make sure you turn it in in the next two weeks because they need to get that. Actually, I turned it in sooner because there's a lot of people who took packets this time. And with uh, the G's having their twins, they're not hosting one of the groups during redemption. So it's a little bit smaller this time as well. So you probably want to get those in as early as possible. I think that's all the things I got to tell you about in the beginning of this. So why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is Mark chapter 10, verse... Uh, Mark 10, 17. And as he was sitting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live and walk in your kingdom. That we would see you as you rule and reign over our lives and we would live in great joy because we know that you are our God and we are your people. We ask that by how we live and speak about you that it would bring you great glory and that we would do all things to lift you up. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is uh, the middle of our series called What in the World Part 2. Actually, more than the middle. We have two weeks left after today, so if you have hated this series, don't worry, we are almost done. Okay, two weeks after this week, and and then we're done. Uh, Last year, at the end of the year, I did this thing where I took some things out of the Bible that I thought make me go, what in the world does that mean? And I thought you might think, what in the world does that mean? So I went through those, and during that, I asked you to write down your what in the world questions that you have about the Bible, and we'd come back this year, and we would answer those. And... I asked you guys a certain way to ask these questions. I said, give me a verse and ask the question. But a lot of people just ask questions like, well, what about this? And what does the Bible say about that? It's like nobody listens to me, ever. I I don't get it. So how was a question supposed to be asked? Today's question was perfect, okay? This is today's question. 
Uh, in Mark 10, 17 to 27, I am confused. Does Jesus, does Jesus imply that he isn't good? Does he say it's bad to have riches? And what is the eye of a needle? So if this is you and you wrote this question, bravo to you. Way to go. Way to go. You are almost the only one. The only one. So uh, this is great because you actually give me three things to talk about. I could have done three sermons, but I'm not. I'm going to give you one with a whole lot of words. That's what I'm going to do. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Uh, these verses we look at are about money, God's goodness, the eye of a needle. But the overarching idea is how this starts with this guy's question. This could be his what in the world question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so what Jesus is going to do, he's going to come and he's going to turn two common notions on their head that people had in that day. What most people thought about moral goodness and what most people think about riches and wealth. So yes, today you're going to get a little bit of a money sermon. You're like, oh, why did I come? Because it's awesome, okay? So the guy in these verses, he is both wealthy materially and morally. So he's rich and he is very upright. And Jesus is going to get to the heart of the matter of what's going on in this guy's life. So Mark 10, going to start in verse 17 and go through verse 27. And as he was setting out on his journey, that's Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. That's a big deal because I've seen teenagers. And anyway, uh, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, because they weren't really getting the depth of this, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So there's lots of stuff in here, but there's two main principles that kind of come out of this. Uh, Verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the second one, is in verse 18. Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. And so what Jesus is going to talk about through the midst of this is the understanding of riches and our moral goodness usually is wrong. They're usually wrong. So he gives us new words. So we're going to, and so what we're going to do is take the long way around in this. We're going to start from the back and work our way forward. So hopefully it'll all come together. I once heard Tim Keller do this and I was like, that's great. I'm going to do that too. It's, it's really good. So we're going to start in the backside. Uh, camel to go through the eye of a needle. Uh, this is very controversial in our day. Uh, a lot of people have a lot of questions about this. They don't understand what this means. But Jesus is talking about something very basic because when you take the whole thing in context, it starts with the question of what must I do to inherit eternal life, to live in the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign now in our lives that goes on into eternity. And so Jesus is kind of addressing how to become a Christian. Right in the middle of it, he brings up money. 
And it's kind of like, if you really want to follow Jesus, money is always going to be an issue. It's always going to come up. This is very practical. It is very nuts and bolts, especially how we live our lives in America today. The spiritual dangers of money and wealth. Now, if you've spent some time in churches, and you like the time and this comes up, everyone is always trying to find a way to make this camel through the eye of the needle thing actually make sense and make it understandable. I once heard this guy, and, and I repeated this because I didn't know any better at the time, but I once heard this guy say, well, in, in ancient cities, you had these tiny little openings, and they were really small, and they called them the eye of a needle, and camels would have to get down, and they'd, and they'd kind of go through. It was, it was very difficult, but it wasn't impossible, and camels could make it through the eye of a needle. Sounds really good, but it's not true. It's totally wrong. You ever heard that? It's not true. Didn't happen. Wasn't there. Other people come along and they say, well, no, no. Uh, what happens is the word for camel is, the, is this Greek word called camelos. So it sounds a lot like camel. But the Greek word for rope is camelos. So camelos and camelos sound kind of the same. And they say, well, either a scribe wrote it down wrong or people heard it wrong. And so they, because a little rope, it was twine. And you could really kind of get that through the eye of a needle. It was difficult, but you could actually do it. It's not really impossible. And all these things are stupid because what Jesus is trying to tell you you is that something is impossible. That's what he's trying to do. We're always trying to find ways. Oh no, it can't. It's not impossible. No, the whole thing is that it is impossible. You look at the, the apostles' disciples' response. You're like, well, how can anybody be saved? Exactly. Jesus trying to get across the idea of impossibility. He's saying the more money you have, the more spiritual dangers you're going to run into. It's like saying for us today, a snowball's chance in hell, or when hell freezes over, or when pigs fly. Used to be when the Cubs win the World Series. Used to be that, right? It can be like when the Chargers or Eagles or Vikings win a Super Bowl. It's, it's all about impossibility. Just, you got to just let it be what it is. What Jesus says here cuts to the heart of the common understanding of wealth in their day. And I think when we take the long way around here, it's going to speak to us as well. In Judaism at the time, your wealth was an indication of God's favor. Okay, indication of God's favor. If you were prospering financially, well, that meant that you're upright and that God is on your side and God loves you. If you're not prospering, well, then you did something wrong in your life. God is displeased with you. Uh, in the book of Job, when Job loses his kids and all of his wealth, his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, come and say, oh, you've lost all these things. You've lost all your money. Now you're a poor man. Somewhere in your youth or in your childhood, you must have done something something wrong and now you're being punished for it and we still do this today we equate doing well with God's favor and sometimes it's true but it isn't always true and we equate uh, doing bad in our lives with God's disfavor and sometimes it's true and sometimes it isn't always true the reason Job lost his money is God allowed some things to happen in Job's life because God needed to grow Job into who Job needed to be Job ends up in poverty, not because of lack of wisdom or laziness. That, and that can happen. I'm not saying it can. If you're lazy and spend all your money on the lotto or down at the shoe mash or something like that, well, yeah, you're going to end up poor. But that's not Job. Job became poor because God had a purpose in Job's suffering. At the end of the book of Job, God is actually angry at Job's friends and he, about their dumb counsel. And he condemns them and says, you better go and ask Job to pray for you or I'm going to come get you. 
which would be another sermon and it'd be really fun, but we're not going to go there. Uh, the point is, there's, it's not this simplistic idea of you do good and therefore you're upright and God likes you or you do bad and therefore God doesn't like your things like that. Both these approaches, they're unbiblical. What you have to understand is Christianity isn't like modern politics. Christianity is way smarter than that. And there's one thing that is a constant in the Bible, though, as you walk through these things, is that wealth and comfort and a whole lot of stuff is a more spiritually dangerous position to be in than poverty. And it's still mind-boggling to the disciples, though, that wealth doesn't make you righteous. They don't look at the rich guy leaving and say, oh, great, I didn't like him anyway. He made me feel terrible because he had so much stuff, and I don't have a whole lot. I'm glad he's leaving. I'm not rich. I can fit through the eye of a needle. I can make it into the kingdom of God. Let's get rid of those one percenters. We hate them. That's not what they do. They look and they say, well, if he can't get in, what chance do I have? This incident comes up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's a big deal. In Luke, you're told he is a rich young ruler. So not only is he rich and upright, he is actually a ruler. So hear me in this. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's not because wealth in and of itself is bad. It's not because accruing things makes you break commandments. So Jesus doesn't mean it is a sin to be rich. But what Jesus is saying is that money has a power to blind us spiritually. When we want to be comfortable, that comfort has a tendency to blind us to what God is calling us to do. And in the end, he is saying that nobody, including those with money, will ever be saved unless God himself intervenes, which he does in the person of Jesus Christ. Salvation for anyone is impossible without God. In the scriptures, money, accumulation, stuff, things, wealth is a big deal. Jesus will talk about it three times more than love, seven times more than prayer, eight times more than belief. Jesus talks about this because money fights for our hearts. Either you handle money or money is going to handle you. Richard Foster once wrote this. In point of fact, money has many aspects of deity. It gives us security, can induce guilt, gives us freedom. Most sinister of all is its bid for omnipotence. Money wants to rule and reign and have control over our lives. And many times we give it the ability to do that. We say, oh, all my comfort, all my security is found in how much money I have. Money is a force and possessions have a power over us. Now, just think about this. Uh, when or if you've ever started giving to something like a church or, or something like that, it's hard when you start giving because we always think about our own wants and desires before learning how to be generous. Like I do this thing in premarital counseling with people and I, and I give them different one to ten things of how important certain money situations are. And one of them is giving to a church. Right? And, and people always want to lie because I'm a pastor. I'm sitting there like, how important is it getting there? Oh, 10, 10. Really? Really? When most people, I, I, I'm like, don't lie to me. Just, just give it to me straight. <laughs> what is it to you? And, uh, and usually people get down like, oh, maybe one or a two or three. And I'm like, well, thanks for being honest. I appreciate the honesty. But usually what will happen is one person will be something like a seven, eight, nine, ten, and one person will be a one or a two. That's going to cause strife in your marriage. Because one person sees the ability to be generous as something they need to be doing. And the other person doesn't see it as that important because they're looking towards their own wants and their own desires. And I will tell you, one of the reasons God tells us to be generous and give, because it teaches us how to be generous in all aspects of our life. When you are more generous, when you, say, give to something like Element or something like that, you will learn how to be more generous to your spouse. 
Because it teaches us, God wants us to learn to be a generous people. And so often, we want to hoard and hold on to and keep things. Um, I don't get to teach our gospel class very often anymore, and I don't know if they follow my notes when they do, but in the gospel class, I talk about three, when I do it, about money, I talk about three main ways people give. The first way is what I call the best way. The best way is where we say, God, everything is yours. Everything I have is yours. It just came from a gift from your hand. What what do you want? When we give to God our first and our best, that's the best way that we give. Everything comes from a gracious gift of God. In Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18, it even says the brain that you have and the hands that you have to be able to do work, to make money, that's a gift from God's hand. And so when we give, we're only giving God back what he has already first given to us. We are meant to be stewards. We're not meant to consume everything like locusts. It, it's kind of like this. Uh, if, if, there's a, if you have a kid and your kid makes you a birthday card and they go to your drawer and they pull out your pen and your paper and your envelope and they write you a little birthday card and they put it up and they say, hey, I got you this birthday card. Do you look at your kid and go, no, you didn't. That's my paper and my pen, dumb kid. You don't know anything. No, you go, thank you so much. And that's what God does to us. But so often we go, God, I made you this. And here's my paper. And here's my pen. And here's my envelope. And God's like, you're cute. You know, it's, that, that's, it's all his to begin with. And that's how we have to begin to see it. So that's the best way. Uh, the second way that people give is out of a sense of guilt. I think a false place of loyalty. Sometimes people don't understand that, yes, the scriptures teach us to give sacrificially and consistently, but they also teach us to give joyfully. It's meant to be a joy when we are able to give. The, the scriptures actually talk about people who are exempt from giving in the Old Testament. It's called the tithe. Uh, and those were the people who were disloyal to God and those who didn't know him, trying to figure out who he was. The problem is that most of us in this room would claim to know who God is, that, that we love him. And i got to tell you this. You look around today, studies have been done. Christians hate to part with their money because they think it's, oh, I hate to part. You, waiters and waitresses, usually after a Sunday morning service, they hate the church rush crowd because the church rush crowd, they don't tip and they think we're rude. How much baggage do people in the service industry have to overcome to know Jesus because his followers just screw him over every single day when we show up. I mean, if you are in the service industry, first off, I'm sorry, okay? I'm really sorry for God's people. But also, don't worry, it's not you. Christians are rude and don't give to God either, okay? So, we're all, he's in the same boat. So, uh, the third way that people give is what we like to call out of leftovers. And again, this comes down to controlling money or money controlling you. And leftovers is, after the seventh pair of brown shoes and the a new TV and the cable and the internet and the concert tickets and the Starbucks. There's not much left over. And we go, oh, I don't have very much to give to God. I have nothing left over. We are people who think about God last and not first. And, and giving is not to meant to be some commit to list that makes you holy, but it helps us to grow tremendously in our Christian, in our Christian lives. Can you have a relationship with God and not give? Yes, you can. You can't. But but will it ever be what it is meant to be if you're not generous and understand that everything comes as a gift from his hand? No. No. See, the problem with leftovers is there is usually not much left over. And it shows to us how important God really is in our life. And he's not very. Money buys for the place of God in our hearts. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so we read these words and our first response is, I'm not rich. 
It doesn't pertain to me. It doesn't pertain to me. And planting roots, uh, our, our campaign where we went through it and talked about building element a permanent home and stuff like that, I talked about this a little bit. And there's a statistic today that one billion people in the world live on less than a dollar a day. Two billion people on our planet live on less than two dollars a day. If they look at you and your lifestyle, would they say that you're rich? Oh, Yeah. They would totally say that you're rich. If you make $24,000 a year, you are in the 90th percentile of wealth in the world. If you make over $80,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. You are the 1%. That's who you are. And we are people who must come out of our denial bubble. And realize, as a general rule in Bible times, most people struggle to live from day to day. I'm not saying you need to do that, okay? That's not what I'm saying at all. But for the law of the majority of the human race, for the most time, that's been what it's been like. In the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6.11, Jesus says to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Why daily? Because people struggled from day to day. And I would suggest, biblically, to be rich is to have significantly more than we need to make it from one day to the next. Do you go to your fridge and open it up and go, I got nothing to eat, and yet it's full of stuff? It's like, you can eat a jar of mayonnaise if you really had to. You know, do you look at it and be like, oh my, I just have nothing to eat? We all do that. We all do that. I, I, I still wait for the day, and they might do this now, where they have a picture of what's in your fridge, on your fridge, you don't just stand there with it open, right? Because... I just stand there and stare at my wife's like, what are you doing? I'm like, ah, no, none of that sounds good. We have significantly more than we need from day to day to day. And I think that shows that we are a people who have much more than we think that we have. And so often our comfort and our money and our security makes us want to think that we have less than we actually have. Guys, I would tell you, you're rich. You're rich. Congratulations. You should be smiling because you made it. There you go, right? You can write the blog. How I Became Rich, Aaron told me I was. There you go. Okay. But this is very critical to learning how to live the life God calls us to in his kingdom. We have an identity, and we always tend to take our identity, and we make it by comparing ourselves to other people. Like, uh, if you're looking at how you're doing morally, do you normally compare it to someone who's doing better or worse than you? Usually worse. They'd be like, oh, at least I'm better than that guy, right? That's, that's what we do. When we take money, though, and we, do we compare to people doing better or worse than us? Usually better, because we're like, oh, I don't have that much money. I'm not rich. Oh, I just, I just don't have the ability to do this. We all have a bias, and our bias feeds into exactly how we want to see the world. We tend to focus always on us and what's going to make us feel better. They're the rich guys, not me. And we get some benefit from our denial. Because as long as we can say, I'm not rich, we can rationalize never being generous. And as long as we can say, I'm not rich, it's okay to look around and always want all of these things and claim it's a need. As long as we can say we're not rich, it's always okay for us to be judgmental about those people we do deem as being rich and so materialistic. And then after I think the Bible's speaking to us. The Bible is speaking to us. It is speaking to us. And Jesus looked around, and so did his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because they live in denial. And money makes you want to deny that you actually have any of it. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because our comfort always blinds us. That's why. 
And they were exceedingly astonished and said, then who can be saved? That should be our question. Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. It is impossible without his intervention. It's impossible without God does, without, with what he, without what he does in our lives. It's impossible without his miracle and him coming in and grace coming in. Again, you gotta put this into context. You have camels and needles and money and God's goodness. The context of what Jesus says here is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Rabbinical writings from this time were filled with this question. They asked it over and over and over. And you know there was always the same answer? Always the same answer. There is no competing schools of thought on this. One answer, and it was, obey the statutes of God. Avoid all sin. Live out the law. That's it. And so this guy comes to Jesus, and he asks this question, and he would have known that. You know, why would he ask Jesus this? Some people think that he's testing Jesus to see if Jesus agrees with what everybody else has said. Some people think he's showing off, trying to get a compliment from Jesus. I don't think it's either one of those. Because what you see is the guy goes to Jesus and he gets down on his knees and he asks the question. I think if he was just trying to kind of throw stuff at him, he might have just folded his arms and said, well, what do you think about it? The guy gets down on his knees. And so Jesus looks at him and he says this, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. This guy is incredibly successful economically, socially, morally, religiously. So why is Jesus going after him? Why is Jesus giving him more law and not grace? See, the guy comes to Jesus and he says, I'm wondering if I've missed something in my life. What else? I've done all of these things and yet something still seems to be missing. And you know what? Of course something is missing. But the guy is going and trying to find out what other things can I do. And Jesus is trying to get him to understand that our salvation is not gained by our works. It's given to us by a gift of grace. You know, this is still true today where people keep looking at what one more thing do I have to do. Happened last year to Mark Zuckerberg, the wealth, one of the wealthiest men in the world. He owns Facebook. He's worth billions. Everything's going well. And yet to his surprise, he realizes, oh, something's missing in my life. This happens all the time to people who are successful. And now they're trying to always come spiritual. And yet something is still missing in their lives. Because they're not looking for Jesus. They're trying to find one more thing. What's the one more thing that I need? The same thing this guy does. I've accomplished everything. What's one more thing? I asked Siri. She didn't know. So I'm going to ask you, Jesus, you know, what, what do I got to do? I'm willing to start going to church or read the Bible or learn meditation techniques. And Jesus' counsel, it is, it is honest, and it's also brutal. I mean, he's going to tear this guy down like I think he does for us. So Jesus kind of telegraphs this first by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is not saying, as some people are a little worried about, that he's not good. What he says is, why are you calling me good? Why do you call me good? Why are you walking up to somebody who you think is just a normal human rabbi and calling him good? Because Jesus is saying here, I'm not just a normal human rabbi. I am actually good. So that answers part of that question. But then the punch comes. In verse 21, this is he says, Sure, I'll add one more thing. Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So he accepts what the guy has already said about the commandments, but now he is doing something completely different. When Jesus says this, uh, I'm not concerned, he says, I'm not concerned about all the bad things that you're not doing. If you want to follow me, of course you shouldn't commit adultery and you shouldn't murder. I don't want my followers doing all of that. 
But what Jesus is essentially saying to this guy is it's not just about the bad things. What he's saying is it's deeper than that. You also need to repent of your quote-unquote good things. If you just repent of your sins, it makes you very religious. But if you want to be a Christian, what you have to do is come back and you've got to look at how we've been using our good things as well. This is why the scriptures say our righteousness is like rags. We're trying to use our good things to make us feel better. And what it means is too many people are turning good works into our salvation. We turn our money into the thing that gives us all of our security. We turn our good works. This guy, he wants to take all of his material works and his, and his good works and, and make those his spiritual treasure. He doesn't want to actually trust God in his life. He's trying to find a way to find something else to deal with his inner sense of poverty. And so he does it with his money and his works. And it makes him proud and it makes him feel like he's better than other people. The very thing that he thought made him so good, his works and his money, were the things that alienated him from God altogether. He probably saw God as a boss or a helper or an example, but not as a savior. And this is why Jesus says, and I'll try and put it, I think, in our vernacular of what he's saying. I want you to imagine your life without money, without your things, without your bank account, with all the things that you feel give you security, no trust funds, no houses on the beach. All that's gone, and you're a normal, average guy, and all you have is me. And how does the guy respond? The ESV says he became disheartened and was saddened. These, these, this word in the Greek word means he was grieved. He was grieved. He's grieved because he's faced with the fact that what his life was truly built on. It was built on his stuff. It was built on his things. It was built on his own good works and not his relationship with God. In the book Redemption, Mike Wilkerson, to, uh, right in the middle of it, he talks about it. He says, if you say you got to heaven one day, and all of your family and friends were there, and all the things you ever wanted, all just turned out right, and everything was there, but Jesus wasn't there, would you be satisfied? Would it be what you really want? And I think for most people, the answer is, well, yeah, if Jesus wasn't there, I'd be okay. Because we try and use Jesus in our lives to get the things that we want. We try and manipulate him to make us happy, to give us all the things that we think we need. And that is what Jesus is pushing back against here. He's saying, no, even if you had all those things, if you don't have me, you are poor and you are powerless. You need me. That's what he says. And this is so nuanced. And it's meant to speak to us. Because it's not this guy's financial wealth that's his problem. It's not his moral wealth that's his problem. It's his sense that he doesn't need the grace of God. And so those two things that aren't necessarily his problem actually become his biggest problem. He doesn't see salvation as impossible on his own. This is why Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. People who are truly saved and live life in the kingdom of God, understand eternal life now and today, understand that salvation is a miracle, that there is nothing natural about it. It's an intervention, and it stands over and against all of our efforts to earn it on our own good works. 
for you. You know, maybe it's not your wealth that keeps you from following Jesus. Although I would say a good indicator is what do you spend all of your money on? You can check that out pretty easily because today we almost all use our credit cards for everything. You look at what you spend your money on. But even if it's not that, it could be your moral wealth keeping you from surrendering your life to Jesus. You might think you have it all together, that you're doing really well, at least compared to the people you want to compare yourself to. Guys, when we think that we are good enough, it's usually a good indicator that we are not that good. We're just more prideful, and that keeps us from truly understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's one thing for you to walk around and think Jesus is a boss or an example or a helper, or even as some people seem today, like a sugar daddy. I'll pray, and he'll give me these things. He'll bless me. But if you really want Jesus to be your Savior in your life, you've got to replace what you're looking to as the comfort and the security of your life. I'm paraphrasing Tim Keller here because I can't remember the exact quote, so I'm probably going to butcher it. Uh, but he said, if you want to be a Pharisee, you repent of your sins. He says, if you want salvation and intimacy with God, you repent of your good things as well. And what that means is our good works tend to make us proud. They tend to make us very self-righteous, and many times it puts us in a worse state than if we were just, quote-unquote, sinful, because it becomes the worst type of sin. It's inside where nobody sees. The reality is that salvation is impossible without God. But our focus is always and slowly and surely starts to skew towards ourselves. Given enough time, we start to look at everything that has to do with ourselves. And that's why when we want to understand true and real eternal life, we must understand that we are those who give our lives away and we trust Jesus. And then when we do that, we start to live like he does and give ourselves away more and more and more. Because the God who had everything in the universe gave everything to save us. If you are someone in your life and you feel like you've been a Christian and you still feel like something's missing, it's probably because you are placing your trust in something other than the person of Jesus. You're hoping different things fulfill you and give you that comfort and that security, whether it's how other people think about you or your good works or your money or all of these things. We're always trying to find our comfort and security in something other than the person of Jesus. And this is why Jesus, when someone like this comes up, he's very harsh and he's very to the point and it's very brutal because we have to be broken down to understand what he's really saying. Our hope is... And our life and our salvation is found in him and what he has done. And so we, as a people, must look to and be honest about what we're thinking is our comfort and our security and our salvation. And if it's anything other than Jesus, it will not last. And you will be worse off than before. This is why we talk about communion every week. It's to remind us of what Jesus done, that our God, who had everything, gave everything to rescue and save us. That's who he is. And so we, in turn, as a people, live out the same way. When we understand what God has done, we do it as a response to what he's done. So you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. It reminds us of that. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me so that we understand that we are a people who get to live in the grace of God because of what God himself has done. Our works, our efforts, our energies could do nothing to affect our salvation. But our great God stepped into time to come to rescue lost and broken people. And so what we do is we surrender. We surrender, and we trust him, and we get to live lives completely different because of what he first has done. So I invite you to take me, and the band's going to come up. As they do, uh, take a meeting to be some uh, deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, 
If you have something in your life that you have been looking for that is other than Jesus to be your salvation and your hope and your life, they would love to pray with you about that. If you, in your life, have something that you are clinging on to, or maybe you're feeling like, it's just one more thing, I just need one more thing, they would love to pray with you about that, because it's not one more thing. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And he longs to rescue and redeem and restore and save us because he's simply that good. And then we become a people who get to go out and we get to live our life in generosity in front of others, loving and giving and serving because that is what our God has first done for us. It all comes out of a response. And we must understand what Jesus has done for us first in order to truly live the life he calls us into. And so I would encourage you, if you need prayer, they'd love to pray with you. Uh, we did talk about money, and there are offering boxes in the sidewall in the back. We don't pass a plate. I'm not going to guilt you into it. So now that we've talked about money, here comes the plate, right? We're not going to do that. Uh, it's, it's a response to what God has done in our life. And so if you'd like to, it's there. Uh, there's food and stuff in the back. Grab something to eat. I saw people eating cookies earlier, so there's cookies. That's because somebody is generous, generous and loves Jesus. Uh, so there's cookies back there. Grab something to eat. And maybe this week, you know, sit down with some people and start to have some of these discussions around this. You know, what, where do you get your security from? What things do you hold on to in your life that make you feel more secure than what Jesus has done? Because I think that we need to be honest enough to say those things because in times and places we all feel that way. Oh, it's my job. Oh, it's my marriage. Oh, it's this relationship. Oh, it's this. We all have those things that we put in our lives that we put above Christ. And I think it's good to have people around us that we can have those real and true discussions with. And so I'd invite you to, to grab someone near you and not like right now, it'd be really weird, but, you know, and go out this week and maybe start to talk through some of that stuff. Because God intends for us to worship him in community as well. And I would encourage you also that you remember that worship is what we do outside these walls, guys. We live in a way that shows the goodness and the grace of who God is by how we live outside of here, not just how we live in here. So let's be a people who understand where our salvation lies, where our hope comes from. And then live in great confidence because of what he has done to rescue us. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would remind us of the goodness of who you are. And that we wouldn't take that goodness and make it simply about ourselves. But we would use it in a way that we would understand how you call us to live out your goodness in the world around us. That we would understand your kindness to us personally that it would change us deeply. But that deep change would in turn change how we live in front of others. Give us a heart to see the world around us, that we'd understand many times when we run into people who we just think are, are horrible and mean, that usually it's because they have placed their hope in something that is not you. And so they're broken. And they need the hope of who you are. So teach us to be a people who speak of that goodness. Of the grace of who you are coming in to rescue us. That we can even tell our story. Of how you've rescued us from ourselves. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. And the words that he spoke. And the truths that he gave. Then I ask that we would live out those truths day by day by day. 
would understand that you have first loved us, so we love that you first gave to us, so we give that you came and served, and so that we would serve, and we would do everything out of the understanding of what you have first done. And that would keep us humble, and keep us living in this world as your children. Teach us to bring you great glory by how we live. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.